Um, our text this evening is going to be from uh, the book of Jonah. Um, all four chapters, do not worry, it won't be as long as it sounds. There's not as many chapters in the book of jo- or, sorry, verses in the book of Jonah as you would imagine. But we'll, we'll, go, we'll read from each chapter as we move through the book tonight together. What I'd like to do is just open with prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, I just ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. You know, Jonah is considered one of the least read books of the Bible, which seems kind of surprising because you just assume that everybody knows um, the story of Jonah. But I think it's so well read, or so, uh, so, so much part of children's culture that we just assume that everybody knows the story of Jonah and the whale. And sometimes I wonder if we get that conf- uh, confused with Geppetto and the whale from Pinocchio. <laughs> but I don't, I don't really think many of us um, who haven't read through the book a number of times really, really understand the story. In its own way, it's quite shocking um, when we really reflect upon the behavior of Jonah. Um, in fact, a few weeks ago, uh, when Pastor Batsik was preaching through Exodus at the burning bush, I think that you quoted a pastor that said that wanted to title a sermon, you know, here I am, send someone else. Uh, as we read through the book of Jonah, we'll find out Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, and I thought one title for the sermon would be, here I am, Lord, send no one, uh, because he really wants no one to hear in Nineveh to hear the message of God's judgment. Um, and it's a very convicting book. And so instead of starting with the text of Jonah, what I'd like to do is just quickly flip over to Matthew uh, chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 42. And this will be a very familiar passage to you. And here Jesus is, is teaching, and some of the, it says in verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You know, if those words were spoken by anyone else, we could only hear it as arrogant and self-deluded, but in, in the mouth of Christ, it is so comforting to hear the words, something greater than Jonah is here. Because when we reflect upon Jonah and his ministry, We really need to be reflecting upon our own selves, and we'll talk about that as we walk through the passage. So I really want to think about Jonah in four points. We're going to talk about the obedience of Christ, salvation in Christ, the gospel of Christ, and the love of Christ. The obedience of Christ, salvation in Christ, the gospel of Christ, and the love of Christ. Let's begin with chapter 1, Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, that so the ship was threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. When they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do? To you, that the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon us. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This first chapter, I really want to think about the obedience of Christ, and I want to contrast that with Jonah's disobedience. God calls, him, God calls him to go to Nineveh, and Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And I think it's really important for us to understand the context, because while Jonah is disobedient throughout this book, we need to understand um, what's going on in his situation, because it helps us better reflect on our own attitudes and heart. The Assyrian Empire would eventually be the source of exile for the northern kingdom. It would be a threat to them, and it was an ongoing threat to them. They felt persecution at the hands of the Assyrian Empire, and they were known as a violent kingdom. Nineveh was known for being a violent city. And I think we have to, if we were to use a contemporary example, I think the best thing we could think of is imagine right now a Ukrainian pastor walking his way across the Ukrainian border into Russia into the heart of Moscow and preaching the gospel. What would that pastor feel? Fear? Anger? Would he really want to share the gospel with with a nation that was persecuting his, his own people? Probably not. So when Jonah, when Jonah flees the presence of the Lord, it is a sinful thing, no doubt. But I think it's important for us to understand the context because we have to think about our own hearts, our own attitudes. God calls him to go to Nineveh. He calls him to go to a Gentile people. And remember, the primary role of the prophet 
in Old Testament Israel was to speak to the covenant people of God. And now he was being called to go to a foreign nation, to a nation that, that hated his people, to a violent nation. He was told to go there and to preach, to, to preach this message, which we have yet to hear um, in, in this book, in this chapter. But what does he do instead? He goes as far as he can the other way. Based on where we think Tarshish was at the time, and we know where Assyria was, we're really looking at opposite ends of the ancient world um, for Jonah. He intentionally went as far away as he could, and he fled the presence of the Lord. And that seems ludicrous, but how often do we find our own selves attempting to flee from God's will and presence? But it's not long that he's in this boat, he's down in there sleeping soundly, and the Lord begins to send a great storm upon the ocean. And it's such a powerful storm that I think the pagans on board the ship, who are all praying to their own different gods, recognize this is an unusual storm. It's one that is so significant, they, they think that it's from a supernatural source, and of course they're right. And it's so devastating that they go down and they wake up Jonah solely for the purpose of hopefully he's got a different God to which he can pray to. And maybe, if you read in the text, he's like, maybe, maybe he'll take notice of us, maybe he'll give us a thought. And so they bring him out on deck, or aboard. they're all together, and they're casting lots, which is something done in the ancient world. It's even, we even see it in the scripture. And God uses that method to reveal to all of them that it is indeed Jonah who's the source of this storm. It is God's judgment and discipline on his prophet. And they ask him about himself, and he says, he fears the Lord, and he describes the Lord, and using the covenant name Yahweh, who made the sea and the dry land, the God of all creation. And these pagans, these men who were all praying to different foreign gods, say to this prophet, this prophet of the true and living God, what have you done? It took these unrighteous men to point out to the prophet, Jonah, that he has done a horrible, horrible thing. And so they ask him, here he is, the man who's the, the source of their problem. They ask him, what, what do we do, need to do to you in order for this sea to calm down? And he tells them to hurl him into the sea. And their inclination is to row as hard as they can to shore. They don't want to do this evil thing. And yet they realize they can't. And so they finally relent and they cry out to God. And they say, don't let this man's innocent blood come upon us. And they throw him into the ocean, and the seas calm down. And what's amazing about that is their response is one of repentance and faith. They fear the Lord, they offer sacrifice, and they make vows. Even in the sin of this prophet, God, in his mercy, works in the lives of these Gentiles to hear the gospel. We never, ever hear of these men again throughout Scripture. And yet we have this, this moment in which even the sin of Jonah is used by God in his mercy and grace towards unbelievers. And we have this final verse in chapter 17, which either could fall with the section of material we've just read, or it might fall with the section of material to come, or we might think of it as just a transitional verse. But it's a beautiful one, and it's one we misunderstand, because we typically think that when Jonah is swallowed up by the great fish, that is the peril that he is in. Right? That's the rescue he needs. When I was a kid, uh, and I still like to go there when I'm in Pittsburgh, there's this, there's this um, 
amusement park that's been around for over 100 years called Kennywood Park. And in it, they have Noah's Ark. And it's one of these old rides you can actually walk through and all these crazy things happen. But at the end, you walk through a whale's mouth and out you go. And I always thought of Jonah and the whale. That was a nice, clean, well-painted, dry kind of area. Jonah is swallowed in the belly of a great fish um, into, this, into the digestive tract, if you will, of this beast. And we tend to think of that as a place of, of peril and danger. But that's not how Jonah sees it. You see, the danger is when he is tossed into the waters. For the, for the Israelites, the waters, the sea, was a terrifying place. I think David mentioned that this morning. It was a t- place of terror and judgment. And particularly at a time where there was all this storm going on, and Jonah's thrown in there, and God appoints in his providence a great fish to scoop him up and save him. You know, if we contrast Jonah with Christ, Jonah was unwilling to go to a wicked, faraway land to call it out, to call out uh, against its evil. But you know, Christ came from a faraway land, from a perfect kingdom, in which he enjoyed um, a relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in a way that we cannot understand. And he willingly took on flesh and became like us in every way, yet without sin. And he willingly dwelt and tabernacled among a people who were sinful, all in order to be obedient to his Father and for his love for unrepentant sinners. You know, if we also think about Jonah when he is in the, uh, in the ship, he's asleep during the storm. And yet when he comes, when he's woken, he's terrified of what's going on around him. But if we think of the same kind of storm from Mark chapter 4, Christ is awoken during the storm. But the storm is not there because of his disobedience. The storm is there for him to give a sign to his disciples of his power at the Son of God and to give them peace. You know, Jonah is tossed into the sea, into judgment, because of his sinful disobedience. But Christ was hung upon the cross because of our sinful disobedience. You know, as we reflect on chapter 1, we just, we just need to remember that Jonah is sent, but resists God and flees from God's will. And we find ourselves doing that every day. It's unlikely that most of us will be called to go and preach the gospel in a faraway nation, but there are things every day, every opportunity that we have to share Christ and him crucified, share the hope that we have, and we, we pull back from that. There could be many reasons, fear, anger, whatever it is. We find ourselves unwilling to be obedient to God. But for Jesus, you know, in John chapter 4, 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. God accomplished his work to glorify himself in the redemption of of an unrighteous people, and it was all done through the faithfulness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What's also encouraging in here is that we don't see God's judgment upon Jonah. We see God relentlessly pursuing Jonah. There's this terrible storm, and it is an act of discipline on Jonah, and he is tossed into the waters of judgment. But in a moment, we'll see his rescue. And it reminds us that God, when we are in Christ, if we are truly in Christ, he never relinquishes us to our sin. We never have to experience his judgment. He relentlessly pursues us, even if we go into dark and wicked sin. Let's take a look at chapter 2. 
It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head, and at the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, brought up my life from the pit. The Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pray regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. See, Jonah is in the belly of this great fish, and he's reflecting upon God's salvation. He was tossed into the sea. And it's interesting, it says he's in the belly of the fish, and the first thing he mentions in verse 1 is saying, he called out to the Lord, he called out of my distress, out of the belly of Sheol. And Sheol is just a word for death, this dark place of death. Here he is tossed into the ocean, tossed into, this, into the midst of the storm, and he's crying out, and God sends the great fish to scoop him up and save him from death. You know, if you read these first few verses, Jonah does a lot of praying in the water, it seems like, before the fish hits. But we've all had times in our lives where some, some kind of peril is going on, and it's amazing what we can say to God in a few minutes, or in a few seconds even, in our minds. And he feels the waters crashing about him. He says he was driven away from his sight. He was feeling the weight of God's judgment against him. And then, rescue. A miraculous rescue. A rescue that was impossible except for the living God. And he becomes confident that he'll see God's temple again. And I, I'm not sure when he's sitting in the belly of the beast there whether he's reflecting on the earthly temple that he knows he will again stand, stand there in Jerusalem or whether he's reflecting on the heavenly temple. But regardless, he is confident that God has rescued him. Verse 5, he talks about waters and weeds, mountains of being pulled down. In 6, he talks about being brought up, his life from the pit. The, all, this, all these are images of... of one moment being in utter danger and judgment and another being scooped up. And it's not just the danger of physical death, but is the idea. It's a terrifying idea for any of us who are in Christ to think of our God judging us in his wrath because we understand what that really means. And Jonah recognizes that God did not judge him in his wrath, but scooped him up and saved his life. And again, he says, prayer, my prayer came to you in your holy temple. God hears him. And again, we see this contrast all through the book of Jonah. There's this contrast between the pagan nations and their false gods and the true and living God of the covenant people. And if we remember in that last uh, section, in the last chapter, where as those mariners, those, those pagan men are experience God in all his power and their response is to fear him and to offer sacrifice and make vows, Jonah says the same thing in verse um, in verse eight, he says, "Those who, or verse eight and nine, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will pay." That's always the response of the believer when we recognize our redemption in Christ. When we really reflect upon what God has done for us, how He has been merciful to us in our sin, our response is 
a desire to be obedient to him. You know, if we think about this in line, remember, Jesus uses this very sign of Jonah to talk about his crucifixion, his death, and his, and his resurrection. He talks about the sign of Jonah being, the, being the, 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 the son of man being in the earth three days and three nights. And for those that crucified Christ, for those who had, who had put him on trial, for those who had, who had put him on the cross, for those who had, put him in the, who had led to him being put in the tomb, for them, for the Sadducees and the Pharisees and for the Roman leaders, Christ in the tomb meant that, that was a sign of Christ's defeat. They thought they had won. Even Satan, in his own self-deception, thought he had won. And while Christ laid in the tomb, it seemed to the disciples that they were in despair. Probably a deeper depression than any of us can imagine, because they had put everything that they believed in into this man. And they thought they understood what the message was. And then they had a Savior in a tomb. But for us, looking back upon history looking back into God's word, for the disciples after the resurrection, the empty tomb, the tomb became an empty tomb. It became a sign of God's victory over sin and death in the resurrection of Christ. You know, the sign of Jonah is that while Jesus spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, he would be raised from the dead. And if you think of this, this last verse in verse 10, where there's this prayer of Jonah, he has this time of almost a Sabbath rest, where he's reflecting upon God's good works or good mercy and good works and grace, and he's reflecting upon God's providence and he's reflecting upon God's salvation in his life. At the end of that, in verse 10, it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on the dry ground. It is a type of resurrection, because Jonah, when he was thrown into the sea, was as good as dead. There was nothing that could rescue him but the providence of God. And when he sat, when he was laying there in the belly of the, the belly of the fish, he was as good as dead. As, you know, as, if we look in that situation, we'd be like, "There's no hope." And God spoke to the fish, and he's thrown up onto the shore. It really foreshadows the sign of Jonah. Foreshadows this resurrection of Christ. You know, Jonah had to be rescued from death because of his sin, but Christ was resurrected from the dead because of his obedience as the promise of our own future resurrection. You know, Jonah trusted that he would, once, would one day again offer prayer in God's temple. Jesus knew that he would serve forever as the true high priest in the Lord's heavenly temple. You know, Jonah is saved from, from the consequences of his own disobedience. He's pursued relentless, relentlessly by God And there are moments in our lives of suffering frequently from our own sin where God pursues us relentlessly and we experience the consequences of that sin. But yet he gives us a place of safety and comfort from which we can reflect upon that. Be reminded that even in the consequences of our sin in this life, he is never leaving us alone. We're never left alone. There's always a place of safety in him if we are in Jesus Christ. We never suffer alone or without purpose, even when our own actions are the source of that suffering. And our confidence can rest not in ourselves, but in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Well, let's move to chapter 3. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. In this section, we're going to reflect upon the gospel of Christ. And there's a second call to Jonah to go to Nineveh, whether it's immediately, a few minutes after he's, I would think, have a shower after being thrown up from the belly of the whale or the fish. We don't know how long it's been, but God calls him a second time, and it says, Jonah arose and went. (laughs) He learned at least part of his lesson. We'll see that he's still struggling a bit here when we get to chapter 4. And it said the city was a three days journey. That's roughly how it's translated. And I was reading recently that they do think that, that Nineveh was probably 60 miles wide and an average man's walking during the day might have been 20 miles. So about three days journey. Three times 20 is 60 miles. And it seems like he walked into it about a day's worth, a third of the way. And he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And everybody believed, put on sackcloth, repented, the greatest to the least. We all wish that when we shared the gospel, it was that powerful and effective. In fact, I was reading Calvin, and Calvin thinks there must have been more message given. Maybe they shared, they talked more, and so forth, because it seems like just such a brief message. But I, I really think this is it. I think this was the message. There's judgment. 30 days, 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What we can't miss here is just the miraculous power of God working in the hearts of the people. This is revival. This is repentance. This is what happens when God in his providence glorifies himself in the redemption of a people. Nineveh was a violent, violent, violent city. You know, what amazes me is, is, is this whole um, issue with Russia and Ukraine is going on. The shock of the Western world that this could happen in our time. As if we have changed at all. There's always this assumption that somehow we are not like those that went before us. And the fact is there are always tyrants just looking for the opportunity. And as wicked and as evil as it is, and we must pray against it, it is an opportunity for for us to speak out clearly on Christ and him crucified because the question of whether man's heart is sinful should not be a question. It's just an evil thing. To see armies attacking innocent civilians for absolutely no reason but except for the ego of a powerful dictator. There's, there's no reason for it. No justification. And that's the kind of city Nineveh was. It was a bloody empire. And God glorifies himself in this instance 
by relenting from destruction because of the repentance of the people. And that repentance itself is also a supernatural work. It's so powerful, it's so dramatic, that the king himself, a pagan king, takes all his garments off, all his, and these garments just aren't his clothes, these are the symbols of his authority and his power. Everything that makes him great, and he strips them off, and he puts on sackcloth, and he sits in ashes. He clearly shows that he's in repentance, and he puts out a proclamation that everyone is to turn from their evil, that they're to do this, their fasting is to be so great, they're not even to drink water, and they're going to do the same thing to the animals, which seems like a strange thing. But I think what's happening here is the reason that they're also doing this with the animals is the idea that in the ancient world, and in our world too, but in the ancient world, those animals represented their commerce, their economy, their wealth, very source of life. He's dedicating everything to God in repentance in the hope that God will relent from his punishment. I, I love this one. He says, who knows? <laughs> who knows? God may turn and relent. Because they only have a message of judgment in front of them. And so what, should be the, what, what do we think the response then of Jonah would be? Well, we'll see that in just a moment. But you know, after the resurrection... After the resurrection, Christ's ministry during his life was primarily to the covenant people. We see some notable examples like the woman at the well and, and so forth. But primarily his ministry was to the people of Israel. But after the resurrection, he gives the Great Commission. We're all familiar with that. Telling them to go to all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I've commanded. And the Holy Spirit is given. In the book of Acts, we see the church going out among the nations, and being somewhat surprised when the Gentiles come into it, even though Christ gives them that very commission. And it's really, it's really Christ, through the church, through the work of the Holy Spirit, who continues to take the gospel to the nations. Jesus' work hasn't stopped. He's ascended to heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, but he, through the Holy Spirit, continues through the church, through the work of the Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, to take the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles, To us. I mean, this is the reason the church has to stay on mission to preach Christ and Him crucified. That's our job. That is the mission of the church. The gospel's power is in the Spirit who works through the Word and through the means of grace. And we should always remain confident in the foolishness of the gospel. Now, in our individual lives, our delivery never has to be perfect or always complete, but we always need to be prayerfully ready to share the hope that we have. And Pastor Nick was praying in his prayer that, you know, if any come to morning worship or evening worship that don't know the Lord, that they might have their eyes open. It is possible, believe me, it is possible for people to sit in a church for decades to hear the word preached in a faithful church and not know Christ and him crucified for their sins. And so I just, we should always take account when we hear the gospel preached and look at our hearts. Well, let's go, to, let's go to this last section, chapter 4, and finish up with the love of Christ. So the reaction should be, right? Jonah was excited, right, to see everybody redeemed or repenting. That's not how it goes. Let's look at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. 
And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God had appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. I remember it was early 2000s sometime. There's always these, these books and kind of trendy things that come out in, in bad Christian literature. And I remember there was, do you remember the prayer of Jabez? Everybody was talking about the prayer of Jabez. You will not see a book promoting the prayer of Jonah as a model for Christian prayer. When I read through Jonah, two things. When I read, I'm sorry, when I read through chapter 4, I think two things. One, he sounds like a petulant child. And two, I have prayed exactly the same way before God. Nobody needs to tell me to pray or act this way. I do it quite naturally. You know, he, he was displeased. In fact, this is where we really get an insight into the reason he ran in the first place. He knew God's character. He says, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I know you're a good and loving God. That is why I didn't want to tell anybody about you. <laughs> now, I think he wanted to share that message with his people. I have no doubt that Jonah wanted to share the this news with his people. I do not think he wanted to share it with the people that he hated. There was a deep anger there, and I think an understandable fear. And he did not want to see them saved. He He says, he gives the indication that he's already had this conversation in prayer with the Lord. He says, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? And you just get the indication that from the beginning, he's, we don't get this picture till the end. But I think from the beginning, he's been pretty clear with the Lord that this is not what he wanted to do. And then he says, I'd rather die. Just get that idea. Just, just let me die. And God, all throughout this book, you see God's act of mercy and grace. And it's, it's dramatic in the, you know, in the great fish swallowing Jonah, in God's relenting, in the destruction of Nineveh. But one of the most powerful statements of God's mercy might be this little phrase, do you do well to be angry? When my sons are disobedient, my gut reaction is to want to scold them. It takes all kinds, I'm getting eyeballs right now, get all kinds of, it takes all kinds of, of work of the work of the Holy Spirit in me to get me to gently 
correct them. God just, you can almost imagine God just bending down and says, saying to him gently, do you do well to be angry? A disciplining love of a father. He's trying to get him to understand what he's saying. And, and Jonah positions himself to watch over the city to see what happens. I think that's still in the back of his mind. Maybe they'll screw up and God will still destroy them. In fact, I wonder in the back of his mind if, if he's not standing above Nineveh in a similar way to where Abraham overlooked Sodom and Gomorrah. But Jonah would have done well to reflect upon Abraham in that time because Abraham pleaded with God in reverence and respect to show mercy to Sodom and Gomorrah for a few righteous men. But Jonah wants them all destroyed. And God provides comfort. This is a very strange chapter. I remember when I was, when I, was I think in college and read, really reading Jonah for the first time in its, in its totality. And I'm like, this is just an odd chapter. There's this plant growing up. We end the book talking about cattle. What, what's going on? But as you, as you really read through it, it, it makes a lot of sense. He sends this plant and it provides jo- Jonah some comfort from the heat of the day. And then it seems to go overnight, and then God allows this plant to be destroyed. And Jonah's the reaction is, I just wish I'd die. I mean, it's just very dramatic, right? And he's just angry. And God says to him, he says, you pity this plant. He says, um, he says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? <laughs> Jonah's response, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. <laughs> it's just the tone I hear. And, you know, it's ridiculous, unless, but yet God is merciful and explains to him. He says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? What is he saying? You pity this plant, just a plant, that you did not do anything to either grow or to, or to raise it. He's contrasting Jonah to God. God is saying, I made these people, all 120,000 of them. And they are so lost, they don't know their right hand from their left. Either, I don't either, because I'm using the wrong hands, as I said. They don't have any idea what they're doing. But they're my people. And then he talks about cattle. And I think God is saying, even these, the life of these cattle, these, these beasts that I've created, they would be destroyed too. God even has compassion on the lives of his other creatures. He's saying, Jonah, you have pity for this plant, but you have no pity for the life right in front of you that would be destroyed. But they're my creations. I have mercy and I have grace. And then the book just ends there. You know, it makes us think that, if you think back to Mark chapter 6, we'll just wrap up here in a moment, but if you think back to Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, later we, we see most of these people are scattered because they're really just looking to Christ for miracles and to be fed and so forth. But nonetheless... It says Christ had, you know, that Jesus had compassion on them because there's a sheep, or I'm sorry, I'm thinking the wrong chapter. Hold on. Um, I'm getting my chapters mixed up. Give me one second. Let me make sure I do this right. There we go. Yeah, this is right. He said, now many, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns that got there ahead of him. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, here it is, and he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. They didn't know their right hand from their left. 
They were lost. That's how God has looked out upon us. We were like a sheep without a shepherd, and he scooped us up. And he showed us his mercy. And he showed us his compassion. When Christ showed his anger, it was against the Pharisees and the Sadducees who knew the word of God and hid it from the people and kept them from hearing about salvation. He, he showed his anger against the, uh, the moneylenders in the temple because they had turned his temple into a den of thieves, a temple that was dedicated for the people to come and have access to God, to offer sacrifice, to experience redemption, to hear the word. That's where Christ's anger was directed towards those who would keep people about hearing about the mercy and love of God. We really need to look at our own hearts and say, are our hearts hardened against unbelievers? Are there groups of people or individuals that keep us from wanting them to hear the message? Or we'd rather them face destruction. We never want our anger to be an obstruction to the preaching of the gospel. Instead, our anger should be directed righteously against anything in the church which takes the place of the preaching of Christ and him crucified. A righteous anger. One that's focused on removing those obstacles. But the mission of the church has to always be the seeking of the salvation of the lost. And that's often to go to peoples who hate us. Pastor Nick preached this morning and talked about how the world will hate us. And it's really hard to respond to people who hate us with the gospel. We'd rather just call judgment down upon them. See, Jonah's doctrine is good. He says, I know that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. But his application is horrible. Since you're a good God, I am not going to tell them about you. That way they don't have an opportunity to repent. And it sounds ridiculous, but we all do it in our own lives. You know, if, if you think about the book of Jonah, I think the question I want you to walk away with, we'll just say three takeaways from this, is who wrote Jonah? Now, we know it's, it's an errant, infallible word of God, and God could have had it written by any number of, of prophets in the Old Testament, but I think it was Jonah. We have a lot of firsthand knowledge here. I think Jonah writes down on paper exactly what occurred. Who knows exactly when he wrote it in his life, but I think he, he reveals it. So what's beautiful about the word of God is we have one infallible, pers- or one infallible person after another pointing us to the perfect work of Jesus Christ. It's a warning to us, and it's an encouragement. We have to see ourselves in the mirror of Jonah. We have to look at ourselves honestly and recognize how we reflect that same attitude. But we also have to recognize God's tender discipline towards us, his mercy and his grace. Just like, just like bending to the ear of Jonah and saying, do you do well to be angry? God in his mercy gently disciplines us as a loving father. And finally, we need to see ourselves in union with Christ. Because remember, Jesus says, one greater than Jonah is here. That's the good news. One greater than Jonah is here because where Jonah failed in so many ways, he pointed to a perfect man who succeeded in every way, being obedient to the Father, not only outwardly, but through his heart and action, and in doing so, purchased our salvation in Calvary. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, though we did not deserve it, 
you sent us Christ and him crucified. We thank you for the sign of Jonah. We thank you for the empty tomb. We ask, O Lord, that you would make our hearts sensitive to those around us, always in prayer for the most wicked and vile in the earth, and that we would always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.